Welcome to podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today's guest is at Anarcho Toast or under Anarcho underscore Toast. Rather, I'll call you Anarcho Toast just to make things easy. But uh, today we are going to be diving into a pretty interesting article from the Anarchist Library uh, that is titled "Anarchy, Power, and Poststructuralism" by Alan Antliff. But uh, Comrade Toast, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Uh. Great to be on. Thanks. First time you've uh, been on a podcast, right? That's right. You're popping my cherry. <laughs> Literally, the cherry man. But uh, let's see. How long? Uh, you're you're like a real committed anarchist and a pretty principled one. How long has that been? Like, how long has anarchism been sort of uh, an interest for you, or something you've been really committed to? Um, anti-authoritarianism as a general, like you know. Um, principle has been a lifelong influence, but uh, to identify with the actual, you know, ideology or f- philosophy of anarchism, I'd say it's been going on almost two years. So. Right on. Yeah, I think that's probably pretty true for me too. Is like far as I think I was like nominally anarchist in in, some, in a lot of ways, um, and actually kind of kind of funny because it's kind of stemming from that post-structuralist and like existentialist angle is kind of where I approach or that was kind of my entryway into anarchism, just like as a broad sort of uh, sort of interest. But I haven't really delved into a lot of the anarchist-specific um, theory and, and writing and stuff like that. So I think this will be a pretty good point, uh, jumping off point for discussion, because I think you're pretty, you're probably more well-read, honestly, on the specifically anarchist literature than I am. Definitely on the classical stuff, uh, which is mentioned quite a bit in this article, right? Uh, they got Bakunin. They got Kropotkin, uh, some Goldman, so definitely, yeah. Plus Sterner in there. When I saw that, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I just picked this article, and then Sterner shows up. I was like, that's just bonus. Yeah, it is, and it's a good contrast, I think, uh, between the classicals and Sterner with his kind of like, I don't want to classify him. <laughs> yeah, it's I think egoist. definitely egoist, but like left-wing egoist, which is uh, just such a novel, like, that's not even a concept I had ever even considered until I just randomly stumbled upon. Like, cause I think Sterner is sort of the meme philosopher or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That, that, um, he's quite, he's quite, uh, memeified. And, um, I mean, he's I, definitely his viewpoints are kind of proto-communist, right? He had his, he had his influence on Engels and Marx regardless how much they hated him. Yeah. I think too, for me, he almost in a way is a, like, sort of a proto post-structuralist or post-modernist too in that he's attacking these sort of like and they sort of mention it too in the article we'll get into that about sort of these metaphysical ideas that don't really like that sort of end up applying power to the individual or what have you which i think is kind of interesting and i may be misquoting this but i think there's this might not be a direct quote but he has an idea sort of that even like the concept of being of a human is sort of limiting in a way and sort of enforcing like this kind of rigidity on what you can even be as kind of a individual or a subject. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and surprisingly, there's a lot of literature to cooperate that even in the Marxist circles, right? It's the idea that these particular people like Sterner anarchists and some Marxists had this idea of defining the, the, the limits of the infinite, right. And the unbounding of the human as this determinate like limit. Right. So, Definitely. It's almost Lacanian, too, in a sense where, like, there's no no signifier can really ever 
capture all of the meaning. Like there's always going to be some surplus meaning that's escaping from our signifiers. It's almost like signifiers are a spook. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, good call. But damn, uh, this article, pretty short, but I, like I said, kind of texting you before the uh, pod is that uh, I pretty much highlighted the the entire fucking PDF. <laughs> so I may end up just reading the entire PDF back yeah. to the audience for this episode because there's just such a, so many great quotes and thoughts and then we can sort of jump off there. But uh, I think one interesting place to start is just really honestly the first first sentence here because um, he typed, Antliff sort of mentions Todd May um, initiating a new turn in contemporary theory, post-structuralist anarchism commonly abbreviated as post-anarchism, May's seminal study, the political philosophy of post-structuralist anarchism, called attention to ways in which the political philosophy of anarchism echoes the concerns of post-structuralist thought, notably in its critique of oppression. Um, Have you, and you said you've spent more time kind of delving through the sort of classical anarchist text. Have you done much investigation into sort of the, I guess, I don't know if they're this is even sort of post-left anarchism or not. It's definitely under the umbrella, right? And much like anarchists themselves, it's not a monolith, right? There's a lot of um, heated debate within it, right? We have mutualists, et cetera. Um, So the most post-left I'm familiar with is kind of like the the radical and prim side, the Jack, um, what's I forget his name, Black, um, where he kind of steals some black flag Baller and his logo and his literature, which you can get like at info shops. So I'm not super familiar with like the broader, more academic post-structuralist post-left. Um, so it's definitely new to that. Pretty interesting, I think, um, especially like I said, because of my in- that's kind of where I started, and now I'm coming to anarchism through that lens. But I was just kind of curious. Um, so according to May, Marxists didn't address the hierarchical relations sustaining this state of affairs. Instead, they called for the seizure of the reins of power by a benighted proletariat that would subordinate society to its will by restructuring economic relations in the image of socialism. Historically, historically anarchists opposed this because they were suspicious of any social formation, however well-intentioned, exercising power over others. Anarchism interrogated relations of domination with the goal of destroying all representational forms of power, precisely because such a politics are already at one removed from the represented. Which I thought was a really fucking awesome quote, for one. And I thought it was really interesting that this sort of tied in, or a a lot of this tied into the Malatesta reading that I did a couple of weeks ago uh, on the anarchism little pamphlet that Malatesta had put out just in that sort of that skepticism of even a well-intentioned, you know, vanguard party leading the revolution and post-revolution and restructuring society in that way and how sideways that project can go. And, you know, a lot of people can, we can argue whether or not history has borne that out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that, you know, there's probably a lot more nuance than, than maybe, what do you think? Do you think anarchists are ignoring nuance when it comes to the Soviet Union and sort of those sorts of the Marxist-Leninist approach? I mean, I'm probably coming from a bias, but um, I would say that the nuance, the, the, lack, the nuance is lacking on the authoritarian side, right? Because one thing about anarchism, in my experience from learning it, is that it's 
tied to kind of like this good study of history, right? And, and power throughout history. And anarchists will give credit where credit is due on issues where certain actions were required, right? But um, there's undeniable facts of um, how this carried out with the Soviet Union that the critique holds up. Um, it's pretty widespread that most of the critics of anarchism are actually quite ignorant about anarchism in general. They have this preconceived notion that they get from wherever they get it from, either from reading bad faith things from their Engels wrote, that everyone, all the Marxists quote. So um, it's definitely a blind spot about the nuance that anarchism brings to the table. Definitely in the popular imagination, but even more so, or as well found in like the sort of Marxist line for the most part, right? It's a boogeyman in most of the statists. All right, um, it's kind of a cage of the mind in its own way. I thought there was an interesting criticism here from May, though, coming, and this is something that appealed to me, and I think almost ties into this other, so I'm reading Frederick Jameson's The Postmodernism, The Cultural Logic of Late Capitalism, and so he's quoting from the text here, the anarchist project, he argued, this would be May, is based on a fallacious humanist notion that human essence is a good essence where relations of power suppress and deny this impoverished notion of power as ever oppressive and never productive was the Achilles heel of anarchist political philosophy. Yeah, I, I think he may have done a, ba a bad faith reading, right? Um, because, and I don't want to quote stuff outside the text too much, but, um, you know, it's, I can see where critics think there's like a humanist bent to it, right? Because of certain language you'll see amongst anarchists about like the human potential and human freedom, right? But that comes from, ultimately it comes from an individual basis, right? Which is opposed to this humanism thing. It's just to recognize that my freedom, like my fundamental freedom to be and do, exists through the welfare of those around me, right? And um, I think this text will get into that as well. There's some quotes from some of the big guys. Um, and power does not mean that power cannot be exercised diffused through the populace, right? As a multitude of agreement between the, between us, the people of the agents. So I think it's a misunderstanding of power, right? It's more about, it has to be diffused and everyone should have agency, not just a structure or a dedicated group, et cetera. I thought it was interesting, um, this quote, especially the end part where he's talking about power being both a coercive and a and a creative function or performing a creative function as well, that definitely like rung bells of like Foucault's kind of discourse on power itself and how, you know, there's this idea that it's always a negative force, but it's both productive and oppressive. Like it's a, there's a duality there. There's a dialectic present in the, in power itself. Oh, absolutely. I mean, subjugation requires you know, the, um, the creation, the resources to have, you know, to create the, the stick that beats you down, right? And um, that ties really well into the critique of how the state, we can't really defeat capitalism without defeating the state because the state has the same function, right? It has to produce in the same way that capitalism produces. And it produces for its own sake, not for the sake of the individual or the collective, but for the structure of power itself, the prison. I did think it was interesting, though, here, like this, this idea, though, I, th I think, well, maybe so more so like this is maybe geared towards the Marxist idea of shit. 
of basically that you know society has or capital is so much more complex in the modern era than it was you know it's much more mature now obviously like a lot of people say we're in late stage capitalism right so the productive forces and everything has sort of outpaced that kind of industrial era that Marx was writing about right and even so you know a lot of our uh, you know Kropotkin etc some contemporaries Sterner right around that same sort of uh, historical epoch of the sort of you know maybe 100 150 years after the industrial revolution and so this kind of appeals to me in the sense that like we're well beyond just this like very simple critique of industrial capital capital has now territorialized things like signs and like it's got a there's a semiotic element to it there's like a there's a importance of to me for sure like with like what Baudrillard does in discussing the political economy of the sign and this focus on consumption and signifiers and all that sort of stuff that discourse broadly speaking is super interesting but there's definitely a subversive tendency to commodify things beyond the material right things that border into the ideas, culture, conceptions, right? We have so many phenomena from culture appropriation sold, right, as products to to consumers, to f- symbols. Um, yeah, because if you think about it, we're like, we're even beyond sort of use value in a total, like, it's even further abstracted, right? Because now we have, like, these basically, these commodities that are getting produced. You're selling an identity or, like, a, the signifier of a particular identity or cultural or status you know what i mean yeah i see that so instead of the traditional use value of like you know this is something needed for life needed for producing reproducing it we're basically creating value that is simply derived on desire and consumption exactly brilliant (laughs) he's got a the article next comes up with a pretty good quote from emma goldman that i want to read um a closing summary of anarchist principles from her night from 1900 or roughly thereof from her essay anarchism what it really stands for. Anarchism then really stands for the liberation of the human mind from the domination of religion, the liberation of the human body from the domination of property, liberation from the shackles and restraint of government. Anarchism stands for a social order based on free groupings of individuals for the purpose of producing real social wealth, an order that will guarantee every to every human being free access to the earth and full enjoyment of the necessities of life according to individual desires, tastes, and inclinations. And she nails it, um, right? You know, what you could say in a thousand words, she nails those are the core principles, the free and equal access to the social product and the ability to fulfill who you are as an individual to your ability with no restraints. You know, I was at the uh, I was at the Green Belt earlier today here in Austin, and I thought, oh wow, this is like the perfect this is perfect example or a good example at least of sort of the of anarchist ideals. In that there's there's no like lifeguards there, there's no park rangers, there's no cops, there's no you know what I mean, there's no authority found, and yet there's this communal resource that people are just like going and hanging out and like enjoying. And it works, and there's no, you know what I mean? There's no order, there's nobody like, you know, it's pretty like fend for yourself in many regards, right? Because you're kind of going down these pathways. Some of them can be like a little bit challenging to hike through, you know what I mean? There's no signs, there's there's nothing. Like it's pristine sort of wilderness for the most part, obviously, outside of like 
trails and whatnot, you don't see a lot of trash, at least at the, the spots that I go to. So, yeah, I mean, I think it really fits. I was just thinking, out there thinking, wow, this is definitely, this is anarchism in action in many regards. And I think it kind of fit. This quote reminded me of that. Then uh, the article goes on and uh, talks a little bit about it. There's a Kropotkin quote from his Anarchism, It's Philosophy and Ideal that I wanted to read as well. In an anarchist society, antisocial behavior would inevitably rise as it does at the present, the difference being that this behavior, if judged reprehensible, would be dealt with according to anarchist principles, as he argued in his Anarchist Morality. More positively, the libertarian refusal to model individuals according to an abstract idea or mutilate them by religion, law, or government, allowed for a specifically anarchist type of morality to flourish. This morality entailed the unceasing interrogation of existing social norms and recognition that morals are social constructs and that there are no absolutes guiding ethical behavior. And um, those, the, definitely those, those writings that by Kropotkin, et cetera, are quite on the fringe, right? They're not the ones most people talk about. So it's easy to be like, oh, if your assumption is that society is this perfect place where everyone works together and guess what do they want? Well, you know, that sounds utopian. That sounds, yeah. um, you know, not like reality. But no one claims that antisocial behavior or bad tendencies will not resurface under the society. But we won't bludgeon the individual with the tools of the old world, right, of our right. current, um, whether it be just ideas. Because, I mean, and it kind of goes to how we raise children, right? There's a really hierarchical way that society raises children, putting boundaries, both moral, legal, or like tying the legal with the, with the moral in very strange ways. And, um, you know, we totally break that, and we have to question these constructs because they're ultimately they are our, our chains. I'm going to have to read this anarchist morality book or writing from Kropotkin because that's what, like, that, my question is, like, what the fuck, what does anarchist morality look like, you know? But obviously, definitely, like, that, this whole concept is very much pushing in that sort of post-structuralist, you know, that sort of extreme skeptic that you, or that idea of extreme skepticism that you see in post-structuralism and this idea of that, Basically, these these norms, everything is sort of a social construct. It's situated in a particular time and place, and you can't really tie these sort of platonic, you know, concepts that are going to be there for all eternity. Like, society and humanity is always going to be contingent, and so those things are what's norms and values and morality is always going to sort of shift in a sense. Yeah, and, and that's why we, the study of ethics would be so great going into whatever we build new in a hopefully a post-revolutionary world because we have to interrogate value, right? And like ethics, like ethics, there's no absolutist ethics no matter what Immanuel Kant wanted <laughs> because um, the value will always change in the context and the mature realities we deal with, right? See, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just dumb, but I always felt like the Kantian view was one that showed like the sort of inevitable failure of <laughs> of all of this like how do you co- like the in the sense of like the categorical imperative that sort of like what is always true like what is always good or you know what i mean what is always moral in every single situation i can't even can barely like i don't know if i can ever think of even one i maybe 
and that's the reason why Kat never left this house because <laughs> he didn't want to deal with the question because there there is no matter how you model it there's no way that you're not going to create some harm right um it's there's um i wouldn't say coercive but there is a um what's the word he that can't reference like a means a manipulative or a way to use people there's always some self-interest in any interaction that we have with other people and so he noted that and that is a constant right but I think he kind of had a point when he talks about the axiom or what is the axiom behind your action? The maxim. I think he calls it the maxim, right? What is it do I want? And avoid entering any kind of interaction, um, seeking to just this person just to be a means. Yeah. And I think anarchism allows us to kind of deal with that conflict of interest, right? We can still use our peers for our betterment, right, or for our gain, but we do so in a way that builds society as a whole. Because ultimately, we do need to exploit, not not the way that capitalists do it, but we need to use the labor of our peers to build the world that we want, right, with the resources that we want. But it has to be, like Emma Goldman said, on, on, voluntary, on a voluntary basis, not on a kind of a dishonest one, right? Or at least... Or like a, trans, like a capitalist transaction. Right. Transactional basis. Yes. Even if it is a zero-sum game, it's like, I don't know. There's something about viewing that view of, and can't talk, you know, you just brought that up about the idea of no person is a, what is it? I can use these. No person is a means to an end, ends. Yeah, you don't use people as simply a means, right? Um, you, um, there has to, um, I, am, I can't recall all of Kant because it's not the most exciting reading. Yeah, definitely. But anyways, we'll move on a little bit into the article. Um, there's another great quote from Kropotkin that I wanted to read. Be strong, overflow with emotional and intellectual energy, and you will spread your intelligence, your love, your energy of action, broadcast among the others. This is what all moral teaching comes to. Shades of Frederick Nietzsche, Kropotkin is citing a passage from Guyal's Equis de une morale sans obligation ni sanction a book that also influenced Nietzsche's overman concept and related to the idea of going beyond good and evil, an interesting confluence, to say the least, given post-structuralism's indebtedness to the German philosopher. Which definitely, I think, um, you know, a lot of the po probably Nietzsche's probably the most influential on the post-structuralists, uh, I would say particularly with Foucault, especially, especially, and then generally like Derrida and what have you. And I'm not even sure, probably not as much with Deleuze, but definitely Foucault. I just thought that was um, kind of really interesting to point out that, that indebtedness there. rather than, And I think they even mention it too later on in this article that sort of Nietzsche is sort of the person to go to as opposed to Marx for anarchists. I think Nietzsche in general is a great introduction to the left um, because if you don't come in it from like with the preconceived notions of economy or, I mean, there's certain, I guess, prerequisites before you arrive at Marx, right? You're digging for some kind of economic insight. Nietzsche does straight into philosophy, right? Straight into the, the condition of what he's describing. And they kind of did not, all these Germans did not arrive at the totally different conclusions. They said society is kind of this coarse kind of contrived thing. And the meanings tied into it that kind of keep us here are not as absolute as they would, everyone would like us to think. 
And so a lot of people do go into Nietzsche and go into their some kind of left Marxism, right, or anarchism. And even even among some of the individuals, anarchists is a great influence as well, which um, was not alien to to classical Marxism, even though classical Marxism was very much birthed from the same place as uh, Marxism, early Marxism, I would say. We have another really good quote in the text from Bakunin that I wanted to read. And I always think it's funny when I see Michael Bakunin listed in these articles. It's like, I want Mikhail, goddammit. Yeah. Don't fuck with me. Peter gets Michael. A, Peter gets a pass, right? Peter, yeah. but uh, no, it has to be Mikhail, always. For sure. It just sounds cool. Like Michael Bakunin sounds like a, like, I don't know, shades like of Michael neighbor. Scott or something, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but let's see. The anarchists, okay, so Bakunin who famously declared the destructive urge is also a creative urge in his reflections on freedom and equality. I am free only when all human beings are all human beings surrounding me, men and women alike are equally free. The freedom of others far from limiting or negating my liberty is on the contrary. It's necessary condition and confirmation. I become free in the true sense only by the virtue of the liberty of others so much so that the great number of free people surrounding me, the deeper and greater and more extensive their liberty, the deeper and larger becomes my liberty. I'm a big fan of that quote. That's awesome, yeah. It's a great contrast towards like the liberal liberalism's view on freedom, right? Uh, you'll even see like Locke and some of the U.S. founding fathers argue that our freedom ends where other people's begin. So automatically it means that the fact that there's free people around me, that limits me immediately through some juridical sense of the law. And he's saying, no, like, you know, it's not the case. The fact that my peers are free means I am freer. So Bakunin's quote, I thought was, was great. And like you just illustrated that idea of this collective concept of freedom, which is one that's so foreign and alien to this sort of liberal idea that we get from people like Locke and the founders and so forth. Um, and that also, it's funny too, because that definitely reminds me too of the Malatesta anarchy. Obviously, I think he and Bakunin either knew each other or exchanged correspondences or, or something like that. Actually, yeah. Um, when um, but Malatesta met him at age 18. And um, Malatesta was actually sick with pneumonia when he met him. And he joined the First International, or I think it was the Alliance for Social Democracy, which was like Bakunin's splinter group from from the Marxist uh, current. And yeah, uh, Bakunin actually nursed Malatesta back to health from having pneumonia. And so, um, of course, uh, Bakunin would actually die pneumonia a few years later, while Malatesta would live a very much longer life. And um, they definitely had a close bond. I think there was this story, I'm not sure how true it is, but there was a case where uh, Malatesta was in the same room as Marx. Marx says something less than um, favorable about Bakunin, and uh, Malatesta was willing to throw throw hands <laughs> over it. So nice. So in that in that pamphlet, Anarchy by Malatesta, he it also spells says Michael Bakunin <laughs> instead of Mikhail, which is why I brought that up. Another crime by that uh, <laughs> right. translator. Seriously. Uh, let's see. Bakunin goes on to theorize the necessity of socializing property in the name of individual liberty. We are convinced that freedom without socialism is privilege and ju- injustice, and that socialism without freedom is slavery and br- brutality. A prophetic quote. I would say that applies to the Soviet Union and kind of the ML states. 
Yeah, absolutely. Where you have socialism in name, you have, you know, this kind of welfare thing, but ultimately you're not free. It's, you know, it's a brutal police state over you. So quite prophetic. I think it's interesting too, and maybe this is, this is more geared towards if you're trying to argue with, with liberals is the idea, like, I think the, the liberal formation, and this goes to probably that quote we were just talking about in that kind of collective sense of liberty versus the individual sense. It's like, it's flipped. So like in the liberal sense, private property is like, like the idea, like, what is it always, uh, a man's house is a man's castle or something like that, right? It's like your private property is your liberty or, you know, that you own versus this idea of like, we can't, we can't have liberty under that situation. We have to all, if we all share in property or the means of production or whatever, that, that is where true liberty can be found. And I think the, the classical liberals weren't entirely wrong, right? Like, you know, he, the entitlement, they had this idea that property was freedom when they came from a world where property was exclusive, right, to, to the aristocracy, uh, to, you know, the bloodlines. So there was, a, there was like a liberating kind of emancipatory nature and kind of common property, right, to people, to the commons, uh, the commons to, to non, non-aristocrats. But ultimately, they did not foresee, and this is kind of their utopian angle of their worldview, that amassing enough of it, right, would cause freedom being taken away from others around them through the totality that is the property relation. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, we see this magnified in late capitalism as these fucking forces have had centuries or a century and a half or more to develop. And a lot of the critiques hold up, right? Like the, these guys live in a world where capitalism was not global yet, and their critiques hold up now that we have global capitalism. So the the, the patterns are the same. It's just that the scale and intensity, you know, <laughs> it's beyond anything that they could have ever imagined. Yeah, and especially, I mean, even I mean that would apply to even sort of like pre-internet, like neoliberal society. But now, like with the internet, it's sped up even further. It's like at the speed of light. And it is, to me, like, I almost feel like capitalism is accelerated so fast that it is, like, literally dis- dissolving all the social bonds between individuals. De- uh, there's definitely this kind of, like, um, bedfellows thing with neoliberalism and the Internet, right? Because it preceded it. It was preceded the decades right before the Internet. And the kind of atomizing nature of neoliberalism is definitely well alive in the way the Internet as a business model runs. Because I also have had this theory, too, that the only, like, due to this this sort of how powerful and the acceleration is of destroying social bonds, that the only way for capitalism to remain valid or viable is for some type of, like, fascist or authoritarian turn. You know what I mean? Like, whether it be something like what the PRC model is versus, like, the U.S. model, but, like, those huge nation states can only exist with the material conditions of like something like internet technology, information technology by really like collapsing down and becoming authoritarian or fascist, you know, or whichever, you know, route you want to take. It definitely makes the the task of ruling easier when you have complete control of the interactions your, your populace has on a daily basis. Right. Um, especially after that kind of huge, uh, turn at, in the average spring, right, where those insurrections were orchestrated to the internet. 
And if anything, we've seen kind of the police state become counterinsurgent. And that's definitely a tool in that in that arsenal for them. Yeah, it's funny. Um, right around the time that really social media was taking off, I was in grad school. And I had this theory, and I even did like a, f- a case study looking at like the Zapatistas in, uh, in Chiapas. And I think maybe like Hezbollah or Al-Qaeda and how they were utilizing information technology and like this sort of asymmetrical information war paradigm to, you know, fight against global capitalism or the U.S. empire would have, you know, different instances there or like NAFTA, you know, free trade agreements that kind of fucked over the Zapatistas pretty hard. And I had this very like positive utopian. I was like, oh, shit, well, this is this is going to be great because it's going to democratize everything and this is going to allow people at the fringes or, you know, the individual to have a lot more ability to emancipate themselves. But man, <laughs> it took the total opposite turn. No way, like as pessimistic and cynical as I was at that point, I don't think I was quite um, ready for the turn that it did wind up taking and where we are now with with Facebook and Twitter. I guess specifically Facebook is probably like the worst defender. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and as they seek more and more profits, you know, um, they'll definitely want to get some of that government money. It doesn't hurt. There's a quote here um, from this author, Saul Newman, which I'm now after I read this article, I was going through the anarchist library and looking through a number of different like I'm searching just like articles that mention like Lacan or Foucault or Deleuze or whatever. And uh, this guy, Saul Newman, keeps popping up. So um, I'm definitely going to I've got like five or six articles downloaded that he wrote that I'm interested in. But I'm going to read this quote from the text in Anarchism and the Politic Politics of Resentment. Saul Newman asserts that classical anarchism assume society and our everyday actions, although oppressed by power, are ontologically separate from it. But if power is separate from society, why has so much theorizing been devoted to the social conditions through which libertarian power can be realized? The post-structuralist anarchists have yet to acknowledge, let alone to address this issue. Any thoughts on that quote? I'm most interested in, too, in like this idea of ontological... that power is ontologically separate from society? I think anthropology holds that up, right? If you look at some of the stuff that David Graeber has done, who's an anarchist anthropologist, um, there's definitely a case where society can live without it and come and transition into and transition out, right? Um, There's this kind of, and even Kropotkin kind of uh, paid due to this, right? There's this, like, outside of the medieval commune, which is kind of his emphasis at the times. But uh, you can look at like early 2000s Argentina where the kind of the state collapsed for a bit and workers were able to create autonomy. And these people were just regular people who have never read anything about anarchism, but they organized themselves in a completely libertarian way. It's like this natural tendency, that's how we want to live. Um, but, you know, through either manipulation or chance, someone arrives at some point of asymmetry and then it's a means to an ends, right? Ultimately, power. So I think there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of debate over from the post-left anarchists about like the idea of praxis, right? The post-left isn't so worried about praxis. They just kind of want to destroy the power structures that keep them in bound, but they don't really have a path. I mean, as far as I've seen, as far in my limited experience with reading about it, they don't really have this kind of theory of how to achieve it. You'll kind of see it in the stuff that Crime Thing publishes these days as well 
where like, you know, the, well, we just got to crush the state and then we'll figure it out later. Um, but the kind of political economical political economy that still exists in even modern anarchist communism is we kind of have this analysis of how we can continue society regardless of power when regardless of it existing right we kind of do have an answer for that question moving on there's an um he quotes or talks about uh, as jonathan perkis relates in the 1960s the key theorists a post-structuralism emerged from and were reacting to the radical wing of a structuralist movement dominated by Marxism. I would assume this is, this is Levi-Strauss and Althusser, or Althusser. Having adopted the structuralist critique of the Enlightenment subject as unitary and absolute, they then rejected the Marxist hierarchy of social forces, forces that determined, in the last instance, the subject's formation. Seeking to develop a more dynamic notion of the decentered subject while deepening their critique of a third or uh, authoritarianism in all its guises, post-structuralists drew in the first instance on Nietzsche as the understudied alternative to Marx. And this, that was that quote that I was referencing earlier as he had mentioned Nietzsche. Perhaps this can be attributed to a lingering misreading of the anarchist subject as just another variation of the humanist individual, autonomous from the social forces which structuralism attacked, this, after all, was the accusation leveled by Marx and Engels in their polemics against the anarchists of their day, notably Bakunin and Stirner, St. Max. It is ironic indeed, then, to encounter the same claim being leveled over 150 years after the fact by post-structuralist anarchists. Be that as, as it may, classical anarchism offers some promising avenues for exploration as a brief examination of anarchist theory and practice in Moscow during the Russian Revolution, 1917 through 1921, reveals. From its founding in 1917 until its untimely demise, the locus of anarchist activity in Russia's capital was the Moscow Federation of Anarchist Groups. The federation was founded in March 1917 after the Russian Tsar's abdication and eventually dissolved around 1919 due to repeated attacks by the communist government under Lenin's leadership. During its short existence, the Federation Secretary, Lev Chernyi, Chernyi, was the organization's leading theorist. Chernyi expounded on association, eh, associational anarchism based on Stirner's anti-statist manifesto, The Ego in Its Own. And this brand of anarchism was also discussed in the Federation's newspaper, Anarchia. Given its importance for many in the Federation, therefore, Stirner's The Ego in Its Own merits close reading. Which, of course, I'm excited. That's like my next big project is to read the ego in its own after I finish the Jameson book, or the unique um, in its property, right? Which like is the a alternate. Which is a, yeah, that's a doper title. Yeah, definitely, right? It's more For metal. Sure. <laughs> For sure. Stirner's thesis is that anarch's liberation could only be accomplished if all habitual subservience to metaphysical concepts and social norms ended, and each unique individual became egoistic that is self-determining and value-creating. Anti-statism, Stirner argued, was an inescapable facet of egoism because when the individual achieved self-realization of value from himself, he inevitably came to a self-consciousness against the state and its oppressive laws and regulations. The criminalization of society's outlaws was the state's response to those who asserted their desires over the sanctions of morality, law, and author authoritarian forms of power. Every state formation, 
monarchical, democratic, socialist, or communist demanded subservience to abstract principles in a bid to exert power over the subject. And then we've got a great quote from Sterner here. Political liberty means that the polis, the state, is free. Freedom of religion, that religion is free, as freedom of conscience signifies that conscience is free. Not, therefore, that I am free from the state, from religion, from conscience, or that I am rid of them. It does not mean my liberty, but the liberty of a power that rules and subjugates me. It means that one of my despots, like state, religion, conscience, is free. And that's a great insight by Stirner. And you kind of see this, like, um, opposition from, like, the Marxist side, if you look at, like, the Leninist side, where they want to kind of, they don't think about liberating property, right? They think about, you know, killing or, you know, using the state and destroying the people who own or control these properties. But in a lot, even in classical anarchism, we have this idea that we want to liberate property from its current owners, right? That just the idea of property itself, right? Liberated from the constraint of the thought. And I see how that Sterner says that. In religion, not just liberation from religion itself as an institution, but the very, the, the very, idea, the very idea, the spook, right? The metaphysical of it, liberated from, from its own constraints. And I think, to me, that's, like, where I come, and I think this is too... I mean, he, they don't really stress this as part of this quote, but, like, it's interesting that, to me, like, that's how I sort of came to anarchism, too, was this, like, radical skepticism towards, like, the state and religion and all of it as potentially being repressive or oppressive institutions rather than just focusing on the solely the economics and I think, and maybe this is being a little bit reductive to our to our Marxist friends, in that like yes, like we can abolish capitalism, but that's not gonna like like I, I see people posting this shit on Twitter where it's like oh if we just abolish like all all conflict or all bad and scare quotes is due to capitalism and I don't just fundamentally I don't think that's the case right yeah that, that's a very economic determinist viewpoint right that that's the underlying symptom and and with Bakunin like Bakunin actually arrived at his thought late in life like in his 50s and he didn't arrive at it from reading books or anything he didn't really have a lot of time to read he was in prison a lot um but he in, in praxis from, from from doing from trying to help people liberate themselves he came to the conclusion like this is really freaking idealist to think that um you know the state will just wither away just because all the bad has been removed from the state like no states don't just wither away Right. You know, they prop themselves up like, you know, they have to maintain themselves and um, from definitely came from a skepticism that his peers did not share or did not want to publicly voice. Um, because if we look at like Marx where the division, like the main division between Marx and Bakunin, if you want, if you want to look at it from a more like a reductive point for the sake of the story, was that uh, Marx wanted political action. Bakunin wanted, you know, direct action. And even though Marx's theory, if you read it to the text, Political action is insufficient, but that's all he was pushing. And ultimately, that's the legacy of Marxism, where that kind of kept going. I mean, they followed in that vein. Like the German SPD? Yeah, the SPD, the first, inter- the second international. The second international uh, sprouted the Leninists. Uh, Lenin was a social democrat until the day he said, okay, you know what? We're a little bit edgier than that. <laughs> um, he became a poster. <laughs> he became a poster, yeah. What do you think, though, this kind of brings to mind, too, a question I have for you about, what do you think about dialectical materialism or 
maybe, well, probably not even that. I would say more so um, material analysis as a, as a tool, right? Because to me, it's hard to beat material analysis for understanding history. And I don't know, like, how opposed, like, is that a, is that a contradiction within my own philosophy or, or not as an anarchist? So I'll say my opinion on it. I might get some hate from some of the truly diamat heads. But dialectic materialism, if, if you look at it from, like, philosophy and, I guess, from as a logician, right, it has its limits in the sense that you can only criticize what is already here or what has happened, right? Because Yeah, there's little predictive value. Exactly. Right? And, and rightfully so, Marx did very little predicting because he knew he did not have the tools to do so, right? Um, I guess that's where some of these Marxists kind of attack anarchists for being so predictive, but we we kind of criticize the state as it is now, and if we follow those very same, you know, self-serving logic, we can see that it arri- it's not it's going to not arrive anything different, right? And that's that's where anarchist comes from with his political thought about the state. Because if you look at the state as it is materially, as it materially has been, and all t- all attempts at trying to use it, it's hold it's held true. So you can't just use that as your only intellectual tool. It's limited. And you'll have some extremists kind of say that, oh, you don't need bourgeois physics because dialectical materialism is the study <laughs> of things in motion. I'm like, okay, well then, uh, can you get us to the moon with dialectical materialism? <laughs> I don't think so, right? right. Um, there's there's stuff that sometimes I priori um, and post-priori. We'll move on Add. There's a little bit of a critique here to against the the anarchist and the Marxist conception of liberating the proletariat. A little section of the text I wanted to read: liberation for the proletariat did not lie in their consciousness of themselves as the class, as Marx claimed. It would only come if the workers embraced the egoistic attitude of the vagabond and shook off the social and moral conventions that yoked them to an exploitative order. Only the struggle for a new stateless order was underway, the vastness of the working class ensured the bourgeoisie's defeat. And this is a quote from Stirner directly. If labor becomes free, Stirner concluded, the state is lost. Which I think is another fire quote. Yeah, and quite true. Um, the state is propped up by labor, like by the social product, even from capitalism. It was a benefit. They were... They didn't cause each other, but they definitely kind of fed each other and they saw reciprocal nature in their creating of the early nation state and capitalism. And, you know, it was a quite a great relationship, especially when capitalism came to the brink of its own end. It was the state through its power that it was able to maintain it, continue it. So we had the Keynesian turn, right? That um, kind of welfare state turn in the late 18th, 19th century to about to the mid 20th century. So he's, he's right. Like that without the fact that they take, our, our product of our labor. They cannot build and create the things that subjugate us. And then I think you most crystal, this most crystally can be viewed through, or you can view 2008 through this lens too. It's like, who did the state prop up when it came down, when it came down to brass tacks, right? They weren't bailing out, you know, mortgage holders. They bailed out the banks who were responsible for the whole fucking thing in the first place. What is like when you're shuffling the chairs on that, like rather than, you know, throw the system overthrow the system they just you know put some duct tape on it basically duct tape and bailing wire no one got their pensions back but they did the corporations did get their interest-free loan 
their interest-free loan. All the executives that were responsible got their bonuses, and only like a handful, maybe like one or two people even saw any jail time from it. But yeah, the people like the people that took out the mortgages, they're fucked. They're homeless, you know. Are you familiar with this? Uh, the text goes on. There's a, I don't know if it's a Gordini, is the thinker, um, and maybe there's a he has followers, the Gordons that they're referred to here. Because <laughs> um, I thought that was interesting. They, there's a quote from Sterner, but or a quote from Gordons, but here the Gordons took a page from Sterner, who condemned metaphysics and dismissed the idea of absolute truth as a chimera. That's a great sentence. <laughs> Sterner argued that the metaphysical thinking underpinning religion and the notions of absolute truth that structured a wide range of theories laid the foundation for the hierarchical division of society into those with knowledge and those without. It's a great quote. I'm not familiar with Gordini, um, but that's a great quote. And there's even, as an aside, right, I even encountered some literature where if you look at like the structure of academia and law and economy and as far as law enforcement there, there's no like real interrogation as to the validity or truth of these like, things they're just they're just highly ideological like oh it is you know these lawyers go in there and if you really question uh, why is law this way you, you don't really get too far I thought this was interesting just more so from like maybe a broader for me from a broader standpoint of like these these ideological structures are these really like fil- like the philosophical idealist position and how those become sort of oppressive regimes in themselves there's another quote and I think this is this was from Sterner the ego, as he countered, recognized no metaphysical realms or absolute truths separate from experience, knowledge, in quotes, therefore was ever-changing and varied from individual to individual. And again, I guess that's more so talking about the spooks and... Definitely like the rejection of subjectivity, right? That some of the, the more, you know, metaphysical kind of emitted, right? Like, um, so much more in the, like, in the subject, right? Um, I don't know, I really know how to articulate this. Or the denial of the subject's experience against some kind of authority, right? So, you know, you're not intelligent, so your conclusions don't matter in this regard. You can't question this, right? You haven't done this, et cetera, schooling. So, I mean, I, th- I think, too, like, you have to look at this. Again, I'll look at this like the material analysis at the time that these texts are being written. You have the Catholic, you know, the church is an authority, right? And there is that idea. I mean, I guess... At this point, probably not so much as it was during the medieval period, but there's probably still some element of, like, the Catholic Church lording over, like, this ecumenical or theological knowledge over their parishioners, right? Like, that's maybe a good model to understand where some of this comes from, right? Oh, definitely. I totally see that that contrast, because you'll see, like, well, you know, Mass was was Latin, and no one knew Latin, no one had to read, so that when... um, when the Bible was readable in Bulgar and the Bulgar languages, that was a huge deal. So definitely, um, power can can keep that knowledge away to maintain. We'd have to, I guess, we'd have to like look at literacy during the what the nineteenth century and understand like where that was, right? Mm-hmm. Like I wonder. I'm now super curious as to where that was at that point, right? Um. I think this is a pretty cool area of the text that he's talking about how Sterner 
is drawing distinctions between insurrection and revolution, reasoning that whereas revolution simply changed who was in power, insurrection signaled a refusable a refusal to be subjugated and a determination of to assert egoism over abstract power repeatedly as an anarchic state of affair or state of being rather. Great critique by Stirner, because if we look at the Leninists, right, their idea of reform was revolution, but all they did was change who directed the state. But his idea of insurrection, I think, does complement like Bakunin or Kropotkin's idea of a social revolution, right, where it's this change of the people coming out to anarchistic tendencies within human society. I feel like I, I may be misattributing this, but I had also... I believe in studying Foucault's writings on power, on the discourse of power. Also, like that was maybe that was a critique from Foucault was the problem with the Marxists was they they didn't like they didn't understand that the state itself, like they didn't reject statism and understand that relationship between state and capital were like they are I don't know what they are almost the same. They're like <laughs> there's a dialectic there. Haha. He there's I mean, yeah, definitely. They can't, like, one hand washes the other. You they know? nurtured each other. Right. They were birthed around the same time. Um, and definitely, like, I mean, early capitalism, if we look at, like, you know, 17th century England, um, it was the, the nation state, the early nation state that kind of fed it with, like, Oliver Cromwell, right, and the, that, that particular regime that kind of was able to take away some property from the lords, et cetera. And as the state became you know, modernized itself, it, it nurtured capitalism further. So there's definitely a relationship there. Moving on. Um, so this is back to that, the Federation that we discussed in Moscow. Um, no wonder the state enamored communists felt compelled to stamp it out. They saw themselves as the vanguard disciplinarians of the proletariat, building socialism by molding the masses under the aegis of state dictatorship. And as Lenin put it during the assault on Kronstadt, Marxism teaches that only the political party of the working class, i.e. the Communist Party, is capable of uniting, training, and organizing a vanguard of the proletariat and of the mass of the working people, and of guiding all their united activities of the whole of the proletariat, i.e. leading it politically and through it the whole mass of the working people. A lot of paternalism there, um, deeply rooted. Lenin was quite of a prude and a <laughs> disciplinarian. Totally fits his character. <laughs> Ever vigilant, the dictatorship of the proletariat was established to combat the inevitable petty bourgeois vacillations of this mass towards anarchism during the initial revolutionary upheaval and to create a socialist society in its aftermath. The practical work of building new forms of economy required a state, Lenin reasoned, because whenever and wherever petty bourgeois anarchy reared its head, iron rule government, wait, iron rule government that is revolutionarily bold, swift, and ruthless had to repress it. And repress it, it did. In the ego and its own, Stirner deemed belief in a transcendent and unchanging ego to be an alienating form of self-oppression. Libertarian egoism, Stirner wrote, is not that the ego is all but the ego destroys all. Only the self-dissolving ego, the finite ego, is really I. That's some fascinating shit right there. That's a good line. Right? 
I'm super interested to delve into that idea. I wonder if there are like any Sterner scholars out there. I think there, I, I don't remember his name and I'll get back to you on that one. Here's a, here's a Kropotkin quote. I am not a mere thought, but at the same time, I am full of thoughts, a fecund multiplicity that defied absolutes. Sterner characterized the internalization of authoritarian psychology as a mode of self-forgetting, a desire to escape the corporeal form, corporeal that found ultimate expression in the otherworldly delusions of immorality prescribed by Christianity. The liberated ego, on the other hand, would never subordinate itself to an abstract truth because it was conscious of its finitude and gained power from this knowledge. Sterner argued, Absolute thinking is that thinking which forgets that it is my thinking, that I think and that exists only through me, but I as I swallow up again what is mine, am its master. It is my only opinion which I can at any moment change, i.e. annihilate, take back into myself and consume. Quite interesting take on the synthesis of self. Man, Sterner is so fascinating to me. Yeah, for someone who was just a mild-mannered teacher <laughs> and owned the milk store. Right. So bizarre. How did he, like, the idea of somebody, cause when was he thriving? Like, what? He mid he was, in the young, he was a contemporary of Marx and Engels, right? Yeah, he was in the Young Hegelians. I don't remember if he was a dropout or not. But yeah, he was a contemporary of the Young Hegelians, and he was the older one in the bunch. And, I mean, he was in obscurity. From what I understand, he was in obscurity up until his work kind of resurfaced in the 1890s, which drove that huge individualist anarchist um, trend in France, right? With, like, the Bonneau gang, etc. Oh, Interesting. The consuming impulses of liberated ego egoism left nothing sacrosanct. As Sterner put it, there exists not even one truth, not right, not freedom, humanity, that has stability before me and to which I subject myself. They are words, nothing but words. Fucking shades of Derrida here almost, in a sense, right? Yeah. Like the decentered subject, like the... Almost, and it's almost that like distinction between almost that like semiotic approach to to meaning, right? And there's a you know these are just words like these signifiers. There's no direct relationship between the signifier and the signified. Like there's no essence within the signified that determines the signifier. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I mean, because you could say it's an approximation, but ultimately it's not. And it's all through subjective reality or experience of reality as well. Correct. As he points out. And then uh, I'm just going to draw from, read from the final paragraph. Arguably then, contemporary radicals would do better marshalling classical anarchism to interrogate post-structuralism rather than the other way around. As it stands, the continual rehashing of May's spurious characterization in a bid to theorize beyond anarchism has merely set up a false god adjective, post-structuralism, at the price of silencing the ostensive subject, which I'm going to have to do a ton of reading on this post, on this kind of idea of like this marriage of post-structuralism and anarchism and I guess post-left anarchism. 
likewise. And I actually have a piece in my to-do reading about um, a, a stronger synthesis between individual anarchism and anarchist communism, right? Well, you don't have to, you don't have to, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, in a large sense, and maybe this is me like falling back on like old habits, this is kind of like that, that sort of like right libertarian instinct that I, or had as like in high school or what have you from reading like Ayn Rand (laughs) the uh what was the book that I read that I it was Anthem that was the one that I really identified with interesting quite a bit interesting story about Anthem so my dad has been a for the past 20 some years he's been a custodian at a high school since I was like in one time I guess I was like in middle school about 12 or 13 and he brought home a copy of Anthem that he had found in the trash can (laughs) And, you know, there's this interesting objectivism. There was a whole intro, right, making it seem sound fascinating. Little did I know that that's exactly where that book belonged, back in the trash <laughs> can. Right. I think it had a lot more um, relevance for me at the time because I was, like, in a small town. And, you know, how, like, culturally I think small towns can be very, like, groupthink or it's very, you know what I mean? Like, there's that, like, mechan- or, uh, it's like organic solidarity to borrow like a sociological term it's like there's when you're in these smaller like social groups it's a lot more important for there to be like this solidarity across everyone like a more like they're more restrictive or conform you have to conform to the norms a lot more tightly as opposed to like a much larger society or cultural group right there's a lot more freedom to deviate from that norm because the bonds are sort of structured differently right Right. So like the, there's a function, um, and this is like functional sociology. It's like there's a function to that conformity in a sense. Yeah, definitely. I, I see that as like kind of like the, you know, primitive human kind of living, right? And, you know, your social circle is closer to you in proximity, right? Like, you know, you'll know your neighbors way more than like in, here you'll know maybe every other neighbor or if maybe just one. So that's definitely this more like social coercion right or cohesiveness for the lack of a better word but or both you know yeah. both in a sense because mm-hmm. it's like it's also it's a lot more apparent in the smaller social group if you are you know if you're not abiding by the norms or that group right versus like in the city of austin like you know you could walk around with your with your dick out or something right nobody's gonna like who's gonna see you right maybe like five percent of the population right no one's going to be aware of that versus versus if you're in like a thousand pop, you know, population of a small town of like a thousand people with your dick out, like everybody in the whole fucking town is going to know, right? It's kind of a shitty example, but no, no. Yeah. Um, it's, it's dialectic of the penis. So that's <laughs> but I, any thoughts about this article? Like from a general standpoint, like my thoughts are this just gave me like a total new rabbit hole to go down. Because it kind of like just wet, like there were just enough nuggets here to kind of be like, oh, that's an interesting idea. I'm super curious. But that's, that's the danger with the stuff, a lot of citations, right? It yeah. just gives you like this rabbit hole of I need to read all this stuff. And I definitely sparked my interest to read more of the post-left stuff, post-anarchy stuff, um, especially like where to look, right? Because it's like, it's not like the most publicized thing, right? It's like post-left is quite niche. Yeah. Instead of stuff like crime think. And even then they're kind of opinionated. You kinda of like get their standpoint. Also, 
great contrast to kind of look into the post-structuralist, right? And and just kind of get all the, all the sides, right? Because I think there's there's definitely merit in uh, analyzing the conclusions of other disciplines or approaches, especially if they're in a vacuum, because you get kind of more honesty about their approach. Yeah, and I mean, one thing too is that it's, I think this is super fascinating to me because this is almost like the post-structuralist or post-modernist theory or discussion is like, a nine like it's like a ten thousand feet view, right? Whereas the anarchism is like a ground level, like direct action, like in the world, like how do we how do we do this, right? So it's interesting to kind of meld those. It's almost like I've used this fucking metaphor so many times on this podcast, but it's like uh the theory of general relativity and like uh fucking what is it? Quantum physics, right? Like there's how do you make like there's that sort of gap that we can't quite merge those two theories. So I think that's like an interesting parallel. Definitely. Quanta is like the actor, right? The individual, independent, subjective actor, kind of the macro view of these things in play at the cosmic level. So I definitely see that contrast. And I feel like I've always been, like in some sense, I'm like an existential nihilist, but yet an anarchist, which I think those are kind of like, there's an opposite, like there's a conflict there, right? There's there's a contradiction there rather. Yeah, but... um, In some senses. I think there's definitely a good synthesis there between those and the thesis synthesis there. Um, so it's definitely a good thing. Just like the ruthless, it's maybe skepticism to a fault. You know what I mean? That's, yeah. I That's maybe my critique of postmodernism or post-structuralism is like, it's so skeptical that like, how can you, how can you have action? How can you perform direct action when you don't really know anything you don't even know your own self or the, what is the self? Like is this, the self doesn't even exist. The self is as a spook, you know, I can definitely see how that can arrive. Like an analysis paralysis kind of situation, right? Where like, you know, you question everything, you don't know where to go. But I, I think classical anarchism, like, you know, will also inform you that regardless of these questions and uncertainty, right? You have needs and desires that need to be met. And that will spur your action, as self, you know, even if it's a self-preparation of this weird spook that is the self. But yeah, you have the urge to, to continue. Right on. Well, uh, we're we're about an hour in. Do you want to uh, maybe do a little a uh, little bit of riffing or something here? Maybe talk about a little posting or something. Sure. Why not? Um, I'm new at this, so you can always guide <laughs> me through. Yeah. Well, let's, let's. I like to open it up at least a little bit every podcast and have a little bit of. A, fun chat so I've said this like a million times especially recently because I've had so many more people that I've met via Twitter come on the podcast or just like met in real life outside of posting and whatnot so I think it's always cool to like that to see that there can actually be sort of a positive function within social media and also like the irony of this all sort of happening from me posting about cum a lot. <laughs> I don't know. There's something I just really, I don't know. I find that hilarious. The irony of it, right? Like we're here talking, we're talking about like this very like rote theory, not rote theory, but you know, these are pretty abstract, heady ideas. Right. And if it wasn't for me m- making stupid cum jokes, like this wouldn't have happened. Well, I guess it kind of keeps the people who won't question these things away. You know, if we can just attack the concept of come directly, 
you know, you surface the people who are willing to tackle these things head on, maybe. I just think that for me, Twitter is maybe the most postmodern out of all the social media. Although maybe Instagram, since it's even more like, at least Twitter has text, but Instagram is just straight up images. But I guess Twitter can have both, right? There's, so it's not limited. There's definitely some like Luhanian to it, right? Where like the fact there's certain different things to the medium, they kind of warp the message, right? Where the medium is the message. You know, they all have their dysfunctions. And I think I think Twitter's always been a weird place, right? Like it's not it's not super normie even amongst the normies compared to like where you see like Facebook or Instagram where yeah. it's like everyone's trying to out normie each other to seem functional and happy or something or, or edgier. Um, so Twitter's definitely way more fun and it's definitely like <laughs> the guitar you lose. It's definitely the, the, I forgot the word, but <laughs> it's a rhizome. It's a rhizome. Yeah, it's rhizomatic. <laughs> Almost schizophrenic at times between like the different, those different slices of, uh, but it absolutely is. That's yeah. like, it, it's funny, but it is at the same time. You know what I mean? Like there's a certain irony to that. Like, yeah. It, and um, you, it's. I, I still have find it fun. I try to avoid the discourse as much as possible, but it's fine seeing how the discourse will bleed into the different sects within. Even something is like left, weird left Twitter, right? You have this weird edgy left comms fighting against the tankies. It's um, it's entertainment, pure entertainment. My my theory of posting is that <laughs> posts are desire manifest, right? Like it's the it's the desire to be recognized by the other. Yeah, I, or to be validated by the other. Definitely. I totally see that. Who who doesn't post and look at the impressions, right, and the interactions on there? You you, you want to know if you're even hurt. Like, a small account, like you start a new account, I can definitely see how you won't really think about it too much. But once you get swept in into wanting to be seen or heard, that's how the rep- reply guy is born. Or the <laughs> reply goon, if you want to keep it <laughs> neutral. Oh, man. I think, I'm trying to think back how my account kind of blew up a little bit more than it was. And I guess it was replying through replies. I was a reply guy. That's how I got to 563 followers. <laughs> Not that I'm counting. Right. There's a, there's a sick validation in the, in that follower account. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Especially when it started to grow. It was, you know, now it's like, Oh, I lose a couple double digits. No big deal. Right. But like when it was ballooning, it's definitely like, I need to devote my energy towards this. This is the raison d'etre. And you're, of course, you know, you have a lot of analytics running in the background. You've got like line graphs and charts figuring out like, what's my engagement like? Got to get these numbers up. Yeah. What are my hottest tweets? Like who is the biggest account that retweeted? Me? <laughs> it's definitely, definitely a lot there. What's uh what's your posting mindset? Like what's your, what's your praxis when it comes to posting? It varies. Um, the baseline was supposed to be kind of just like a shit posty, irreverent anarchist point of view but it can go to angry you know angry old man yelling at the at a cloud or into the void yelling at bernie sanders or uh his or bernie kratz it, it's it's uh rhizomatic at times for me uh, like different things will surface depending on depending on what it what the, what the timeline looks like right um but in general like when i'm it's always goes back to being kind of irreverent shit posting 
not boomer memeing, but you know, kind of <laughs> trying to make memes. Oh, I love memes. That shit's postmodern too. I mean, pastiche. Yeah, and it's it's the the life cycle of the meme is great. Like when it's you know birth into creation, where it may not be super funny, but it kind of finds this like life of its own applied to a myriad of subjects, right? And then it goes into this forced territory where it just becomes a forced joke and it gets graveyarded. But then the relic of that meme maintains and it can come back, right? So it's pretty interesting. I even think, for so for me, it's like I will, a lot of my humor is built on recognizing that this is like, let's say, okay, this is like a, meme that's played out right but like still using that and being like the consciousness that this meme is played out is sort of like that's part of the joke too oh definitely um it's so many levels deep of like simulacra at this point yeah yeah there's definitely a meta aspect to to meme the production of memes or even posting itself like posting has its own grammar and like there's its own grammar its own syntax its own like logical structure and rules and its own cadence yeah it's definitely like it's yeah definitely the the semiotics are totally surface like you know there's its own syntax grammar generative its own lingua franca right if you will i think it's even interesting too when you kind of look at it like there is this sort of simulated aspect to it like in some ways it's kind of like the matrix in a sense but at the same time it's like Yes, like there's a remove there between us interacting on Twitter, simulating communication. But there's also like, it's almost in a sense too, it's almost more true because of the anonymity of it. Like I can be my, I can be my real self because I'm, there's a veil of anonymity where I would, I could say so many things on Twitter that I wouldn't be able to say in real life ever, except maybe amongst like close friends, right? Yeah, I definitely see that, especially with, like, the other platforms that they kind of give you away more, right? In- Instagram, not so much, but, like, you know, they kind of still peek into your life, right? Into at least how you present. Uh, Facebook totally exposes you. Um, but Twitter, you know, it's kind of like this this dialectic between, you know, the, ano- you, you, the anonymous self, you, right, approaching the post, and kind of the circle of who observes you and kind of gives you that feedback loop, right? Where, like, you know, it's a process to go back to the phenomenology. It's almost like a synthesis of self through being observed, right? Because you don't really come into your own as a poster until you've been liked, right? <laughs> right. So you get that fave. Yeah. Hmm. Ah, oh, damn it. I was going to say that uh, there's like a, there's also like a journal aspect to, to posting, right? In that sense of like, you, in a lot of ways, you're you can be a lot more vulnerable, again because of that an- anonymity, right? So there is like, even a more there's a more authentic aspect to this simulated self. That's so fucking weird. The contradiction there, the irony of that. Definitely, um, it's like you know it's a wall, but it just happens to be clear PVC. To the inner working is of our minds. So you definitely you can. I definitely see that. It's like the the little man in my head is just like writing these texts in a bottle. Like, and that's basically what my Twitter feed is. It's like, oh, this joke is funny. Let me throw this out there in the ocean and see if anybody like actually reads it. Definitely. Definitely the jokes that if I would say in 
prop, you know, regular company, I, you know, I, I know they would just like sink and make people very uncomfortable. It's definitely that outlet for me too. How do you explain being online and being like, not just on, I mean, even just being online to someone who's not online, can you do it? Is it possible? I've tried. <laughs> so all my coworkers are not online, like at all. Like I was just trying to talk about memes, right? Yeah. And it's like, they don't get it. They it's don't like, get yeah. it. And I was like, what about meme production? You got to make your own memes. You got to venture out. Right. And like, no, it was just like dead silent. And I was like, no. And you know, um, I made a quip about goth Americans or something like that. And also <laughs> fell flat. Like, you know, so I, it's, I don't think it's something that can be communicated properly. Yeah. I think just give them a Twitter account, give them like a TL Right, and then they'll just be subsumed into the id. Right? There, there is so, like there is so much of a learning curve in a sense. Like there's so much. There's like a gram. Like I said, there's a grammar. There's a structure. There's all these these in jokes within Twitter itself and the discourse itself, and then the little subcultures within Twitter all have their own kind of memes. Whether it be like a visual meme or just even like you know, there's plenty of text memes essentially that kind of accomplish the same thing but within text. Yeah. It's, it's definitely like taking a newborn baby and uh, just integrating with the society whole. It's, it's this whole thing. I've got a question for you. So I, I really got a kick out of this is uh, somebody had had on my, on the podcast, uh, maybe about a month or two ago, Simon Uberic, we did an episode on Lacan and uh, he was telling me that it was really funny to hear me like be super calm and like Sam Harrisy on <laughs> on the podcast, and in contrast to my Twitter posting, which is all about cum and, and randomness. Yeah, and how to like square that <laughs> contradiction? I can I can see that. Um, yeah, I I didn't have that barrier when I met you. Um, so, but I guess I guess as someone who has their own like experience with, you know, this kind of a different self that I, I mean, yeah. I for sure know that I come across totally different than I do in real life on Twitter. Um, don't have that, but I, I can, I can definitely see that. I don't, it'd be kind of funny if someone actually spoke as they posted, like, you know, like someone who's like got no barriers. Right. <laughs> just broadcasting. Just broadcasting. If I was independently wealthy, I would fucking love to just do videos and shit on there. Cause it'd be so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely just to bring that motif into another medium, into the shorts. And kind of what Vine could have been, right, had it not been killed. Yeah. But what is there now? There's like, is is TikTok like, I haven't even fucked with it. Me neither. Me neither. Um, We're getting too old. <laughs> it, it's, just leave it to the Zoomers, I think. Yeah. I think TikTok is very much the Zoomer memes. Like, it, I'm in a discord with a bunch of young anarchists and I'm like the elder at, you know, um, and definitely they'll call some of my, some humor or memes, you know, boomer memes, but <laughs> we're Damn. nowhere. Just I know called out. I couldn't called out, but like, cause to them, 2012 internet, you know, the internet of 2012 is already boomerified, but you know, <laughs> Jesus. And I just told him, no, I'm not a boomer. Like I'm a millennial. My generation's depressed. So like the boomers and there's the Xers who are the edgy boomers now, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, it was pretty harsh. <laughs> Damn. Just getting called out, man. That's pretty rough for yeah. sure. 
sliding into irrelevance. Well, we still have we still have uh, followers, so it can't be that bad. Right. True. And the Zoomers still follow me on Twitter, so they're just being self-righteous. They'll get old, too, one day. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like that Grandpa Simpson joke, right? <laughs> I, will call, I will call out you for... You had one brilliant post that, like... I'm not that... I mean, you've got good posts. Don't get me wrong. But there was one in particular that really stands out. And it was something about, like, a Big Mac... About being dummy... Like, the Big Mac was dummy thick. Like, I can't remember the exact... Uh, okay, so yeah, it was that format. It was like, you know... Um, it's like you were you were parroting the... Because there was the old, like, the way they used to describe the Big Mac was like, oh, sesame seed bun, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. And yeah, you that played was, on that. That was definitely the angle. Um, it was the whole dummy thick thing was kind of getting, like, critical mass, I think. Or, like, it was in the post crest. Um, and it was... Uh, I don't know if I want to pull out my timeline now, but it was um, the clap of those sesame seed buns. <laughs> Get the dummy thick back because the clap of those sesame seed buns keeps alerting my taste buds. That was the one. Yeah, that's it. That was a damn fine post. That was good stuff. Yeah. I really enjoyed that one. <laughs> Y'all should pay me for that. I think they could get some good brand engagement from that. Right? Seriously? Yeah. yeah. Surprised they didn't retweet you. Right? I mean, they. I don't think I'm anywhere near brands. Um I think McDonald's sucks at posting, though, right? It's like the Wendy's who has the better posters on staff. But the the best is Nihilist Arby's. <laughs> do you follow that account? I do not. I think I've seen it retweet a couple times. I'll retweet one if, every once in a while. They're usually pretty good, though. But what else, man? What Posting-wise, what, what do you think? Like, I don't know. I feel like sometimes I even... as as terminally online as I am, I still miss out on like where th- things getting started. So how do you stay fresh on the cutting edge of, of the posting and meme discourse? That's a, that's a tough one. I don't think I'm any, I don't think my slice, like my, t- my timeline is anywhere near kind of like ground zero of, you know, of the creative essence that is Twitter. <laughs> I, I don't think I have a window into that. Well, you do follow me, so you're oh, sort of... Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I forgot. You're one of many um, in my oh. timeline. You get... <laughs> you get... You're underneath... You're the diamond underneath all this rough that I constantly see. You don't... <laughs> I can't save this. I'm sorry. I don't have the blue check mark, sadly. <laughs> or even a thousand followers. But I'm just, uh, you know... If you get enough Patreon money, maybe you could buy a blue check mark. <laughs> right? Yeah. I heard uh, like Black Socialists of America pretty much paid for it. And they have it. That's wild. I heard 10K. But that's I, just... I wonder what, what are the criteria? Because I feel like I've seen some smaller accounts that have blue check marks. Not, I mean, small in the sense of like, maybe like 5,000, 10,000 followers. I remember there was a... Like some people were dogging on this account that had like 224 followers. Oh but man, there was one, a- the anarchist, <laughs> the the anarchist account that had the little like mage, like SNES wizard dude. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. He got, I used to, f- I was, f- I actually was following like, that account for a while. Apparently they were a YouTuber that barely got into anarchism. He came from the ANCAP stand. Oh, land. no wonder. And so he, that explains it. He hasn't really interrogated his, um, yeah. Yeah, chattel slavery is not better than wage slavery. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yikes. 
I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's a big yikes. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I remember this people were dogging an account with 224 followers that actually somehow had a blue check mark. <laughs> it made no sense. Like that's, you know, some corporate money bought that or yeah. something. Well, you saw the, I forget who it was. I don't know if you, maybe you didn't see this, but there was someone who got offered like $2,500 or something, maybe 5,000 for their Twitter account. For the handle? Yeah. They <laughs> basically, the company wanted their essentially, I can't even remember how many followers this account maybe had like 10,000 followers or something. So like not huge, but you know, I guess that's what's huge, right? Twitter, <laughs> Twitter wise, right? Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's huge. Um, but ba- it was almost like buying like an email list in a sense, like right? was almost yeah. the strategy was to like, Oh, we'll just, we'll take over this account. We'll have these already these ready number of followers will put out our message and that was it like they just wanted to reach that audience they're probably better off going promoted because people can always unfollow you for posting shit but i guess i mean how many of those accounts are dead accounts that's kind of a strange business way you know yeah true as you know well i mean it's like i want ten thousand non-egg avatar accounts or something you know yeah that's true do you have any uh what accounts do you follow that you, who are your kind of like, who do you really appreciate their posting? I'm going to get this right this time. Yours. Am I, <laughs> am I in the top five? Yes, you are. All right. Awesome. Um, definitely one of the bigger influences uh, at Antifa Coulter. It's the reverent uh, political left-leaning shit posting. Um, big influence for sure. Um, early on, it was Existential Comics um, because, like, you know, the, to kind of put in some of the left-leaning stuff and also just philosophy. Yeah. Though, um, though he's gotten hate for like stupid shit, but he's he's interv- he's interviewed a different other kind of psychology po- uh, or psych- philosophy slash psychology podcast, and he said himself he just has a huge draft folder and just like has an algorithm pick or he picks one and then has it posted once three times a day, right? At like target audience times or whatever. Interesting. Wow. That's his approach. So he's just like shit posting wherever he is just making a draft and picking the best one he can come up with so when people get mad at him I was like no he just picked a joke and it didn't land so yeah. you know don't get too mad um who else those are the big ones like as far as like humor stuff it's, and I, I like riffing like I'll riff off of those and have a couple of muffos that I'll rip off of I love riffing off of you get stuff like most of I'm not super original like most of my best content is just like you know me you know kind of dunking on someone else's like joke and coming up with sub- with sublimated with a better joke ultimately. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's a lot of mine too. I think is I'll just like scroll through the timeline. Somebody mentioned something that triggers a thought or a joke, like and I'll riff off of that. Oftentimes that's where my tweets are coming from. I think it's the best place, but I think my posting style really is not in line with the algorithm at all. Cause I'll just be like shooting off. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm just like going Rambo style, like posting once a minute for like an hour. <laughs> I, I no longer go with the, uh, whatever the algorithm feed is. I go with like uh, t- chronological. Yeah. Cause like you don't really get to see the good stuff. If you use the algorithm, especially like your stuff, right? Like you'll see like as a wall of, <laughs> right. which, I mean, no, like there's enough activity, but like I'll see, you know, in purse there and I can kind of see like the, through backwards order, kind of see like the thought process with like a series <laughs> on like with the, you know, if you shoot a five on, on jewels and I'm like, okay, I know where he's going there. I can see <laughs> the creative like 
escalation. Yeah, I, I just get on a on a tip, and I'm just, I just stay there and, and milk that shit every once in a while. It's beautiful. Do I do I have a post that stands out? I have so many likes, <laughs> and I, I this weekend I've been not online. I already noticed I haven't been too. Online. I haven't I been too online either. For me, I, <laughs> which yeah, is still, I, which is still probably I, like fifty I, posts a day. I, I know. Like I, I took a vacation not that, a few weeks ago, and I spent too much time on Twitter in that vacation. <laughs> this is like my highest throughput um, in a while. But uh, I can't talk my head. I'm sorry. No worries. But uh, it's great. I stuff. mean, I'm putting you on the spot. Put yeah, you, you are. Spot. No worries. I just think it's funny. Like, how many fucking novels could I have written or whatever polemics, as opposed to all these fucking like tweets the trick is that all your posts you have them there open up the feed and kind of just string them together into said polemic <laughs> right right there's genius there you just got to connect the dots yeah it's all out there maybe that's what the future of polemics and novels is it's just a compilation anthology of like you know cooper cherry tweets from like t- 2019 to 2021 like that's just the scope you know the anthology right yeah a slice into <laughs> that particular time of the posting struggle exactly what was going on on twitter and at this particular time wouldn't it be crazy once that actually enters a historical record because like like we kind of live in this weird hazy stuff where like in the past like historians will like go around and hey does anybody have pictures from said years that you want to share yeah to true kind of right create a, a, a monotone like a collage of what that era was like and now we have digital photos and tweets and you know all kinds of posts like that's gonna be crazy when it's like oh yeah this was the discourse in uh june 2019 and it's like all these just shitty fucking tweets (laughs) you know i just thought about making my own bot out of my own like if i just compiled somehow like all the all the words i've used or all of my posts from twitter and then just create my own bot like anarcho moadab but you should do it <laughs> young neocon at young neocon i don't remember what number he has he has one and it's surprising how eerily close it is to his style somebody even was like you have the posting style of a bot at me one time and i wasn't sure whether i should take that as a compliment <laughs> or like not you, now you need to whether or not bot. <laughs> whether or not it was intended to be a compliment or not i wasn't sure if i should take it as such mm-hmm. or not you know what i mean it's just your like it's almost like well fucking thank you you're posting horsepower. Right. It's amazing. <laughs> but uh, any, do you have any maybe final thoughts, questions, or maybe points you want to bring up? Or even like, do you want to promote any social media stuff, projects, anything like that? Um, if any locals are following and you hate your boss, which we know we all do, uh, hit us up at uh, Facebook at, at ATXIWW and join a union for all workers. That's probably the best player I can get. Nice. Give. Right on. Well, uh, once again, we have... Uh, had have had the pleasure of at anarcho underscore toast joining us today to discuss a little post-structuralism and, and anarchism and a little bit about posting so hopefully this has been fun for you it's been fun for me glad to have you on thanks it's been a pleasure having my pod cherry popped thank you <laughs> my pleasure my pleasure i was gentle this time next time and next time you next time my, you're in trouble i'm gonna blow your bussy <laughs> out for sure <laughs> But uh, do me a favor, if uh, anyone's listening that is interested in following the podcast feed, that is at podcast C.O. Cooper. If you're slightly more daring and want to follow my virtuoso shit posting, follow me at Anarcho Muadab. That's Anarcho M-U-A-D-D-A-B on, on the Twitter machine. We've also got a fucking, we got an Instagram feed as well. You can follow that one at... 
Let's see. Let me pull this up. This is fuck. Can I pull it up? I don't even know what my handle is. It's like at podcast co cooper as well on there. Just look up Cooper Cherry on Instagram. You'll find me. Uh, started a Patreon as well. Podcast co cooper cherry at Patreon. If you feel like supporting the show, that'd be fucking awesome. If not, that's cool. But I I really appreciate it. Um, but anyways, thanks to anyone who's out there listening to us. This is Podcast Care of Cooper Cherry signing off for the week.